is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews, chapter 10. We'll read the first 23 verses. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers here thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. And every priest, standing daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by the one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost is also a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore boldness, brethren, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. In that portion of Scripture, it's especially those verses of 11 and 12, where you have the picture of the Old Testament priests always standing because their work is never done. But verse 12, you have Jesus sitting because the one offering satisfied God and he is sitting now at God's right hand. Based on this and many other portions of God's word, we have Lord's Day 19 of the Catechism. We'll be looking at questions 50 and 51 this morning. Why is it added, and sitteth at the right hand of God, those words in the Apostles' Creed? Answer, because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ our head into us? Answer first. That by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon his members. And then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, together we have walked through the five degrees of Christ's humiliation, which you young people remember from catechism are his humble birth, his lifelong suffering, his death, his burial, and his descent into hell. And then we picked up now the degrees of his exaltation. He has risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. And now the third degree is his session or his sitting at God's right hand. Christ's ascension and his sitting at God's right hand are closely related for his sitting at God's right hand is the very purpose. It is the end. It is the goal of his ascension into heaven. But these must also be distinguished because not everyone who ascends up into heaven is given that position of sitting at God's right hand. Elijah ascended up into heaven in a whirlwind. Elijah ascended up into heaven without seeing death. Angels were seen by the saints ascending and descending the steps into heaven. For they are God's servants sent by him from heaven to care for us. And they, do, they ascend up to heaven to also do his bidding. We will ascend... But like Elijah, like Enoch, 
like the angels, we will not be sitting on that throne in the place of God. We ascend there to enjoy our Savior and to be his servants. How beautiful is the word then of God in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. David there as the prophet speaking recognizes that God is his Lord, but he says to my Lord, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, here's your reward. You will sit here on my throne. So it is a degree of exaltation. And this is our comfort in Christ's session at the right hand. Notice, first of all, the figurative expression that is used. Notice, second of all, our exalted Lord. And thirdly, then the significance of the Lord's exaltation. Sitting at the right hand of God is a figurative expression. What do I mean when I call it is figurative? Well, first of all, God is a spirit, so God does not have a right hand as such. And we're not looking now at a particular spot in heaven. That's not being indicated to us. But rather, our hands are a small picture of God's power and God's glory. Most of us, I believe, are right-handers. And so it's with that right hand that we do a lot of our work. It's with that right hand that we swear allegiance to our country by saluting a flag. Right hand. It is, first of all, then, a place of power or of omnipotence. Peter, speaking of Jesus Christ, says in Acts 5, verse 31, Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior. The psalmist in Psalm 118, verse 16, Thy right hand, O Lord, doeth valiantly. Moses writes in Exodus 15, verse 6, Thy right hand, O Lord, hath dashed in pieces the enemies. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 98, verse 1, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. One more, Isaiah 20, 52, verse 10, The Lord hath made hath bared his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. So, that right hand, when we're speaking of God, it's a picture of God's power and omnipotence. But it is, second of all, a place of honor, of glory, and of favor. You will recall, perhaps, boys and girls, that when Bathsheba came to see her son Solomon and he was on his throne. He placed his mother at his right hand. Or the mother of Zebedee's sons asking that her sons might sit 
Yes, on Jesus' right hand and left hand in his kingdom. Picture there is the twelve thrones judging. In the parable of Matthew 25, the, the parable of the talents, the sheep are conducted to God's right hand, and he says, Blessed are ye of my Father, inherit the kingdom that is prepared for you from the foundations of the world. So notice in all these statements of Scripture, it is now Jesus sitting at the right hand. That is almost all the Scripture passages, not all of them. For if you remember Stephen, when he is being stoned by the Jews, we read in Acts 7, verse 55, but he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of the Lord and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Or again, if we go to, go to the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, verse 6, John writes, And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as if it had been slain. What that does is shows Jesus Christ in action. Rising to the aid of someone else. Rising in order to take, La uh, take Stephen up into heaven with him at his death. Or in the book of Revelation, Jesus is standing because he is preparing to open up the seals of the book, which is carrying out God's eternal counsel and purpose. So God, Jesus Christ isn't just sitting in heaven, he is very active. And we have the wonderful assurance that just last night, Jesus came as he promised, and he took our fellow saint home to be with him. But otherwise, in Scripture and in the Apostles' Creed, the phrase is used, the figurative language of sitting at the right hand of God, and it's pictured as sitting with good reason, isn't it? That is the point of Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, compared is the priesthood of Israel in the old dispensation and now the priesthood of Jesus. Those Old Testament priests, those poor guys could never sit down because their work was never done. That blood would have to be taken from the altar. There wasn't a drain on it. And they would have to sacrifice animal upon animal upon animal because the blood of animals doesn't take away one sin. It's only a picture. But Jesus, when he gave his life there on the cross, by that one sacrifice, he had removed all the sins of his children a sacrifice never to be and cannot be repeated so that Jesus is able 
to say it is finished, paid in full, and he sits down at the right hand of his father. He was that obedient servant who fully carried out the will of his father and therefore sits at his right hand. Work that was finished. Redemption that was effectual. Proof that Jesus paid for our sins once for all. He sitteth at the right hand of the Father Almighty. So we have a threefold picture there, don't we? Work finished, given a place of authority, and given a place of honor and majesty and glory. That's the figurative language. That brings me to my second point. Notice with me. With the eyes of faith, notice with me, it is Jesus Christ that is exalted to that place of power and honor. Of that, the scriptures speak quite often. And again, I'm going to go through your Bibles with you to see these scriptural references. Christ Jesus exalted at his Father's right hand. Psalm 2, 7 through 9. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Psalm 8. In light of Hebrews chapter 2, the dominion and the power of our Lord, we read, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things under his feet. Psalm 24 speaks of the everlasting doors that must be lifted up so that the king of glory will enter in. Psalm 110 where we read, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 52, Jehovah's servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Of the prophets, Daniel he saw in the night visions one like the Son of Man who came to the Ancient of Days and there was given unto him dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His is an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that shall never be destroyed do you remember that dream, boys and girls, of that little stone that came down over against that big old image of, in the vision of Nebuchadnezzar? That little stone cut out without hands comes down from above, hits those feet of clay and of iron, and the kingdoms of this world are toppled. That's not the end of the story, though, is it? 
Not only are those four kingdoms represented in that image toppled, but then that little stone grows and grows and grows and grows and fills the whole earth. That is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or the prophet Zechariah in chapter 6. He sees him who is called the branch building the temple and he will bear the glory and he will sit and he will rule on his throne. Or listen, listen to our Lord Jesus himself. When he was standing there before the horrible high priest, speaking of his coming exaltation, he says, hereafter. Yes, you'll put me on the cross, but hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Find that in Matthew 26. So he has not only Christ's rule right now in heaven, but also his coming again. Jesus' disciples witness the power, the glory, and the honor of Jesus Christ there on the Mount of Transfiguration. There was Moses, there was Elijah encouraging the Lord Jesus for the task that he must do, suffering the wrath of God for us. Stephen, Paul, saw it in visions. Peter preached it, Acts 2. He says, here's the fulfillment of Psalm 110. God hath made this same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Acts chapter 5, before the high priest and his council. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and savior. Paul's preaching, just a couple passages. Romans 8, verse 34. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 25 and following. He must reign till he hath put all things under his feet. One more, Ephesians 1. God's power in exalting Christ We read, and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And we could look at many other passages, Philippians 2, Hebrews 1, and we've looked at Hebrews 10. Our exalted Lord Jesus, that's what the Bible is all about, that you and I, with eyes of faith, may look up and see him. Great stress is laid upon that exaltation of Jesus Christ. There a goal is reached because he has now reached that highest power and authority, Matthew 28, verse 18, All power is given unto me, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth. Given to him is honor and majesty and glory. Matthew 26, verse 64. He has received a name that is above every name. and Everything will be subject under his feet. That is the fact of Jesus' exaltation.
But now we need to understand it. We need to understand, what is that exaltation of Jesus Christ all about? It is this, that Christ Jesus has established his kingdom in his coming down here to earth, being born, suffering, dying, taking our place and the wrath of God in hell. Here is the great counterpit, counterpart to the fickle crowd in Jerusalem. Oh, they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna to the king that cometh, the king of peace. But then their cry became, crucify him, crucify him. God says, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 2, verse 6. That power, that honor of our Lord Jesus Christ is his. It's not that of the triune God now. And it's not that power and glory that he had in his divine nature where he has all power and glory. In other words, this power and this glory is not original in himself, but notice it is given unto him. And it was earned by him. Jesus says, all power is given unto me. It's a power and a glory that was not eternal, but was bestowed upon him after his resurrection. In other words, it's a creaturely power and honor. He is the Son of Man. He is God in our human nature. And he receives that power and that authority as the Messiah in our human nature to rule over all things as the head of the church. God hath exalted the head of the church, our Savior, to that position. Christ is there in heaven in our human nature. The only begotten Son of God in his flesh was humiliated, and now the Son of God in our flesh is exalted. You and I have then our flesh up in heaven, glorified and endowed with power and glory. He he has received that as our mediator. And now that power and that honor and that glory he exercises in his human nature that was given to him, he receives it and he is seated at God's right hand and he rules. Everything is placed under him by God's word. And now God bestows on Christ, the Son in our human nature, the wisdom, the power, the authority, the honor, the majesty, whereby he, placed, he is placed over all things with his enemies, made his footstool. Do you see, beloved, that the first begotten of the dead becomes the firstborn of all creation? The Lord Jesus is Lord over all as the servant of Jehovah. He is up there in heaven as the visible representative of the invisible God reigning. 
What our dear saint who passed away yesterday is seeing is the face of God, and he sees the face of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, the visible representative. And our dear saint is seeing Christ Jesus there in heaven with a scepter. He is ruling in God's house according to God's will. He is the king. He is the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's look at that king, our exalted Lord Jesus in his kingdom, as he's seen in Daniel's vision. Christ Jesus crowned as the head of the church. He comes to the Ancient of Days and all power is given unto him. He's crowned. And then the angels bow down to him and do his service. We read in Psalm 9, verse 7, let all the angels of the Lord worship him. He's worshipped by men. Philippians 2, verse 9, God hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And now the question comes, is that you? Is that me? Is that you? Is that me? Kiss the son. Worship the son. Behold the son by faith. Put your trust in him and in him alone. That brings me to my third point. The significance. The significance of Christ's exaltation. He is a king of his kingdom. That kingdom that was that came as he was in his incarnation, so that John the Baptist says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That kingdom that was established by Christ Jesus, by his suffering and by his death, his victory over sin, Satan, and death. Established, and he now rules in it. And what, cons- what does that kingdom consist of? The whole world. That is, he is a king over this world in his power. And he is king over his kingdom in the church by his grace. And the catechism makes that distinction, doesn't it, in question and answer 51. What profit or what benefit is this glory of Christ, our head, unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members, and then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all of his enemies. Do you see that distinction in question and answer 52? This is our benefit. Now you say... Why that distinction? That he, in his power, rules over the world in power, and he rules over his church in his grace. Why that distinction? 
Well, because this world is not his kingdom. This world is not his kingdom. This world will not become Christianized. This world will not exist and experience a rule over Christ in love and in grace. It's not our calling to bring about a perfect Christian kingdom here on earth. I want to emphasize that a moment because that was the thought of the post-millennialist and that is a thought held now by many of our Christian colleges and also by many Reformed churches. The thought that we, we have to make Christ king. That we have to crown him Lord of all. And then we make his cause to prosper. It's really kind of like Eli's two wicked sons. They thought they could take their arms, in their arms, the ark of God into battle. They would force, really, God to act on their behalf. And then they would make the perfect peace of Israel. And so the thinking of many of these teachers in Christian colleges, pastors and churches is, we have to make this perfect world. That's the cause of mankind. That's the kingdom, really, though, of the kingdom of Antichrist, not Jesus Christ. Antichrist will have an earthly kingdom. He will bring the nations together in peace and prosperity. But behold, that's not Christ's kingdom. For as Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of the world. That is the kingdom of the social gospel. And that's the thought of many Christians that now we have to redeem the, this world. We have to redeem the arts. We have to redeem the dance. We have to redeem the world in other words, almost in their thoughts, what would Christ do without us? Do you think Christ needs you or me to establish his kingdom and make him a king? God forbid. Christ is king. God the Father has given him that position because he was the obedient servant. Christ is Lord over all, not by our efforts, but God has established he is supreme, not only because he has the right, but because he exercises. And that's why you have the Old Testament types, don't you? <clears throat> David was a king. Yes, he was a king over finally the 12 tribes of Israel, but he also became the king over his enemies who he ruled in his power, the nations around, whether it be Moab, whether it be the Philistines, whether it be the Amorites, and the list goes on. So also Christ now is Lord open over all. He opens his kingdom by his word and by his spirit. And he shuts his kingdom also according to the will of his Father. 
In other words, his kingdom is made up of those who are the elect, those whom the Father has given to him before the foundations of the world in order to redeem and to save and make his citizens. And over against the elect God also before the foundations of the world determined the reprobates, the enemies, the world that we live in, a dark world, the people going to hell. There was a Reformed pastor who made this mention in a sermon when he was trying to stress evangelism, and it was a heretical statement. He said, people are going to hell, and it's our fault. He said, it's our fault because we didn't witness as much as we should have. Beloved, we need to witness. The church is placed here in this dark world for that reason. But no one, not one person is going to go to hell because of us. The reprobate goes to hell because God in eternity determined to pass them over with his mercy and they perish in the way of their sins. Listen to the Lord Jesus. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom. And so in his power and his might, he rules over all things and he rules them in such a way that they carry out his purpose. In other words, this world, with all of its sin, is the stage on which the church is born and the church shines as a light in the midst of darkness. The world exists for Christ's church. Christ rules this world with fruitful years, but also barren years. He rules this world so that there is prosperity of some, but there is also depression and failures. He rules over men and angels, but also over the devil and the demons. He rules over the secret intents of the hearts of men. He controls their places and their counsels. He raises up a Cyrus an unbelieving man, in order to use him with his wisdom, send these people back to their own country because they're going to be more productive there and I could collect the taxes. Cyrus didn't do it as a friend of God, but he did it as an agent of God. God's people came back home. God was at work there before the cross, turning the Pharisees and the Sadducees against Jesus Christ so that they, with wicked hands, put him on the cross. God did it in his purpose so that he could hang there as you're my Savior. Yes, Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation is the one found worthy to open up the book with the seals thereof, carrying out God's eternal decrees and purposes and counsel. So that Jesus says, all power is given unto me. And he uses that power now not to save the world, but rather to defend and to preserve God's people from their enemies. The church is here in the world with many enemies. Do you know them? Young people, can you name those three enemies? Satan, like a roaring lion, 
the sinful world that's going to tempt you like the Midianites did with their dances to the Israelites and the worst enemy, probably the most powerful enemy, the one that's within each one of us, that old sinful man, enemies, powerful They have many means at their disposal in order to tempt us or otherwise to persecute us as they persecute many Christians today in many different nations of the world. And while they seek to destroy the church, destroy the church with false doctrine, with compromise, with different views of marriage and divorce, with persecution and sword, Jesus is here in this world ruling all things just as God told Job you can go so far but no further. Jesus Christ uses this sinful world also to try our faith, to make us stronger in our faith when we're assailed with those battles so that we look away from this world as our home to our home above. He is the Lord of the world. And he is the Lord of his church in grace. He blesses them. He calls them out of the darkness by his spirit. He gives them the Holy Spirit. And then he calls them to himself. He preserves them through this world so that they will never be deceived. They will not be led astray. They will not fall away. And all the attacks against the church are controlled by Jesus Christ, used in order to strengthen our faith. And all the attacks of the world are that of a house divided against itself, whether it be the strikes or the boycotts, or the wars, nations against nation, until the very end, the world is divided so that they cannot conquer and wipe out the church. And even even the Antichrist, when he unites this world, always under the sovereign rule of Christ Jesus, While the Antichrist is on his throne, Christ Jesus will defend and preserve his church till he comes again. And our eye then is on the new heavens and the new earth. What a powerful comfort for us. Redeemed and delivered our loved one who just passed away. No more struggles or trials. No more sinful nature to wrestle against. No more can Satan deceive or tear apart like a roaring lion. Safe in the arms of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Lord of his church. There are again Christians that deny that, that they deny the kingdom of Christ over the church. But he rules his church. It's not popes, it's not synods, it's not powerful preachers, 
but it is Christ Jesus who lives in his church, who lives in our hearts. What comfort that is for us as we continue our pilgrimage. We're not facing all those shadows of, the, of death in the valley alone. We're never alone. Although he is bodily in heaven, Jesus is with each one of us by his spirit and by his word. And in his grace, he pours out heavenly gifts. He's the conqueror. Just as David would conquer the enemies around him, he would divide the spoils of the war with the citizens of the kingdom. So Christ Jesus also pours out these gifts. And what's the first gift he has given to his church? Ten days after he ascended into heaven, he received the Holy Spirit as his spirit. The spirit of Christ, we call it, is called in the Bible. And he pours out that spirit on his church. The Holy Spirit is here in the church so that the word that is preached finds entrance into each of our hearts and lives. The Holy Spirit sets up the throne of Jesus Christ in our hearts. That's, that's Christ's kingdom. And Christ Jesus by his Spirit then works new life in us. You and I were all born in sin. Dead in sin. But made alive by Christ's Spirit. It is Christ by His Spirit who enlightens our minds and our hearts so that we hear the call of the Gospel. It is Christ Jesus by His Spirit that works faith within our hearts and strengthens <coughs> that faith by his word and by the sacraments. It is Christ Jesus by his spirit when we become dejected with our consciences accusing us of our sins each day and the spirit says, but you are justified. You are as if you never sinned because Christ has taken those sins away. They are blotted out and you are covered with his white robe of righteousness. It is Christ by his spirit that's working in us, making us a holy people, a godly people. It is Christ Jesus by his spirit that is preserving you and I in our faith and will glorify us. Heavenly gifts, graces, they come from above, from Christ Jesus, our ascended Lord. What hope, what confidence. But he's not only caring for his church down here on earth, but he's preparing those mansions in heaven. And when that place is filled, is finished, and we are ready for that place, he says, come home. Come home, son and daughter. Inherit the kingdom. And we eat and we will drink with Christ Jesus because he has given us that spiritual hunger for him. He makes us here on earth members of his church. We share his life because he's our head. 
We share communion with his body, brothers and sisters. No, we are never alone in this world. When one of us has a joy, we all rejoice. When one of us has a sorrow, we all weep. One people, one body. Christ over us always. And nothing can separate us from this Savior. Nothing in this world, no, how, no matter how fierce that world or the devils are, and not even death itself, the last enemy, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see him by faith? Do you rejoice? Jesus Christ is there in heaven, sitting at God's right hand, working all things for the benefit of his church. What a Savior. Christ, kingdom, the church, our Christian schools, Christian institutions that care for aged folks. Christ rules them all for our benefit. And he's coming for us. Amen. Oh, Father, as those Greeks came to the disciples with a request. Sirs, we would see Jesus. Open thou our eyes, eyes of faith this morning, like the eyes of Stephen were opened, to behold Christ in heaven, sitting at thy right hand, but also standing ready to be in action to care for his church and to take her home to glory. Thine is the honor and the glory, the power now and always. Amen.